Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, scientists are used to fielding questions about why their particular field of study is any use to you or me. If nothing else, we can thank COVID-19 for giving many of us a painful demonstration of the why. But while it's easy to make the argument for medical research, other fields can be a bit more of a difficult sell. I mean, for example, in what way does quantum entanglement affect me? Well, Professor Jim Al-Khalili is a quantum physicist, distinguished chair in theoretical physics at the University of Surrey, broadcaster and author of The Joy of Science. He joins me now. Good to have you back on the programme, Jim. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Jonathan. Yes, good to be back. You have a new book out, which is sort of um, a guide to thinking better, isn't it? If that's not too um, preachy. No, I think that's right. I've tried very hard not for it not to sound preachy, that it's not a self-help book. But <laughs> in a way, it is. <laughs> Talk to me about the idea behind it. What are you talking about when you describe the joy of science? Well, it's partly a celebration of why science and the pursuit of science is so wonderful, um, not just for scientists to, to, to enjoy. And so, you know, people very often think of oh, science is it's all cold, hard rationalism and you remove all the magic and mystery from the world because everything's down to equations or whatever. And it's trying to get across that, no, having a scientific understanding of how the world works is something to be celebrated. It is joyful. I use examples like the rainbow. Understanding what a rainbow is actually makes it even more beautiful and wondrous than, than just looking at pretty colours. But it's also a book about saying, well, how do we get to know about the world? How do we do science? And as you mentioned in the introduction, the, the, um, the pandemic has, has really focused the minds of many people around the world as just to how important and how reliant we are on science. So it's getting across the idea that the scientific method, the way we do science, is actually important and can actually, if adopted more widely by society, could make us all a lot happier. So it's getting across why we should all be trying to think more scientifically, not just to enjoy the magic of rainbows, but because it can help us make better informed decisions in our lives. So for those who haven't listened to this program much, what exactly is the scientific way of thinking? What is the scientific method? Well, it's uh, first of all, you'd say it's uh, coming up with a hypothesis, an idea, a theory, and then looking for evidence or data you know, to, 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 to support whether that theory is a correct or, or a good description of the world. But then, you know, historians do that as well. You know, they come up with a hypothesis and come up with a story or narrative. So, but history isn't part of science. It's just that they use that same tool. Then you say, well, okay, but science also, you know, you have to be curious about the world and ask questions. Uh, but then the argument is, well, you know, a conspiracy theorist who says the earth is flat is also curious. They also, they think they're thinking rationally and logically and they're demanding evidence and so on. So a scientific theory has to be more than that. The way we do science is also about never being 100% sure that you're right, being prepared to change your mind if something new comes along. So with the pandemic, for example, uh, you know, in the early days when we didn't understand how the virus was transmitted, we were told, wash your hands and sing happy birthday twice through, you know, to, to make sure you wash your hands. I forgot about enough. that. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was what we, we, we were told in, in, in the UK, that... Uh, yeah, that's how you wash your hands rigorously enough to avoid catching the virus. Then we learn, actually, no, the virus is mostly transmitted through the air. And so it's getting better ventilation in rooms and not being too close to people, not, not going and mixing in crowds. So a lot of people who didn't understand how science works said, 
hey, you guys know nothing. You told us that just now, and now you've changed our minds. So getting across in science, we are meant to change our minds. We are meant to, we should be prepared to admit when we make mistakes, because we didn't admit to that. If we never changed our minds, we wouldn't make progress. So it's actually a strength. Unlike in politics, where admitting your, your, <laughs> uh, a mistake is seen as a weakness, in yeah. science, it's, it's a strength. So it's things like that, being, uh, having to examine your own biases. Why, where did I get my evidence from? Why do I believe what I believe? Is it because I want to believe it? Or is it because it tells me some deeper truth? So all those aspects that we're trained as scientists to do would be beneficial for wider society to adopt as well, I say. Yeah, and it's interesting how you just, you know, you compared science and storytelling and, and, and other sort of cultural things. Ricky Gervais said something that I thought was really insightful. He said, um, if you if you take culture or religion or conspiracy theories, um, they're different in, in, to science in that if you were to just wipe the earth and start again, science would rebuild itself exactly uh, the mm. way it, it, it has built itself, whereas all the other things would, would change. Or, or, you know, the culture would change and uh, you know, what, what religion was dominant would change. But because it's based on observations, those observations are tested and challenged, you end up at the same point. And that, I think it's a really interesting thing about science, but you, you kind of really um, make that really crucial point that science is about being challenged, testing and defending your ideas, and the best idea wins, I, ideally. Yes, uh, because I think we do seem to be living in a society where, you know, amplified by the internet and social media, where everyone thinks they can create their own version of reality, mm. their own truth, you know, and, and you know, opinion is, is, is valued above expertise and data and evidence. Uh, but certainly in the exact side, the, the natural sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, there is a truth an absolute truth about the way the world is and the way the world works. Yeah. And science tries to get as close as possible to that truth. You know, of course, obviously, we, we, we're not, we never, may never get there, but we try and get closer to it uh, because it's absolute. It doesn't matter what culture, what language, what period in history you're trying to learn about how the world is. The world behaves in a certain way. Uh, in a sense, it's very different from the, you know, the rest of our uh, the way we live our lives, which is messy and complicated and subjective and ideologically based, which absolutely you're right changes with uh, you know where you are in the world and who you are and your upbringing. In science, we get to to what is something that is completely objective, that's out there, that's real, that is true. Well, so I, I would challenge that in one way. I, I, and I think the scientific method is held aloft by scientists in the same way as the Bible is held aloft by Christians in that um, it is an ideal. And yet uh, how we practice Christianity is not always um, how Christ intended. If, if you're a Christian, I'm not. And how we practice science is also sometimes a bit messy. I mean, we are human beings. So the scientific idea is is is, is an excellent one. But sometimes it's let down by um, huma humanity, <laughs> by, right? By, by, by people. people. Ab absolutely. Yeah. No, scientists are people and, and we have our own biases. And, you know, I want my theory to be correct because I'm going to get promotion or get a, a next research grant. Or maybe the people who give me the money to do my research have ulterior motives and, uh, and so on and ideologically driven reasons for, for promoting a particular idea. So absolutely, scientists are not fallible, but the scientific method is meant to correct for that. Yeah, It's meant in the end to make sure that it, we, we do overcome our biases. A bad idea in science doesn't last very long. 
whereas in other area, ideological views, you know, it's, it's, it's based on faith, whether it's politics or religion or uh, what football team you support. You don't need evidence to justify it, nor will mm. anyone be able to change your mind. In science, it's a bad scientist who is who, someone who's unable to change their mind when they're shown that their theory is it doesn't stand up to observations or data, even if they may be reluctant to do so. So the book is called The Joy of Science. And uh, as always, Jim eloquently sort of takes you down this path of understanding to, to find a, an appreciation for scientific method and, and the uses of being more critical about how you think. Jim, I wanted to, to move on a bit and talk a little bit about your research because uh, we're, we're talking about uh, science and, and funded science. And in particular, um, this work you're doing on trying to understand that unknowable thing, um, it seems, time itself. Can mm. you tell me a little bit about this um, multidisciplinary research that you're uh, co-leading and what you're trying to find out about it? Yes, it's very, very exciting. I mean, I've, uh, 10 years ago, my, my career was such that I still had my academic role teaching students and doing a little bit of research, but mostly focusing on the writing and the broadcasting and the public engagement. I've sort of gone back to being a bit more embedded in research. I've realized that at the end of the day, you know, that's the day job, but doing research, thinking deep thoughts. And, uh, you know, we're very um, fortunate enough to get um, a big research grant to look into this idea of, it might sound <laughs> obvious, but why does time have a direction? You know, why is there a past and a future? We, you know, we, it points in a particular direction. You might say, well, of course it does. That, it's not even a question that needs answering. But actually, at a fundamental level, all our fundamental theories of reality, theories of physics, whether it's quantum mechanics, a theory of the very small, whether it's Einstein's theory of relativity, none of them have a, an arrow to time. Time can flow forwards and backwards, and all the equations work exactly as you might expect them to. So this is looking into where does a direction in time come from that we experience uh, as, you know, as common sense. And it means pulling in physicists, chemists, biologists, mathematicians, philosophers. So I'm trying to herd cats at the moment as, <laughs> in, as leading on this project, but it's herding cats in a really fun way. You know, I mean, some of the stuff that we're, we're working on is very... Uh, it's a problem. This is an issue that people have been thinking about for, for millennia. So I suspect we won't answer all the questions in our three-year grant period. You might. We're going to have that, fun trying. You, you won't with that attitude, Jim. You just won't. <laughs> that should be more positive. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's dig a, a bit deeper into this because you're talking about quantum mechanics. And, and um, obviously, we experience time because we get older, days pass and so on. But you say that that doesn't happen on a quantum level. What, what do you mean by that? How can something, how can time itself not happen uh, at a quantum level? Well, it, it, it does happen, but it doesn't, you can't, if you look at an, uh, uh, an atom moving around in a box, right, do, do, minding its own business, and you film it, let's say, you know, you had a very good camera that could see atoms, and then you run the film backwards, you wouldn't be able to tell. Right? You wouldn't be able to tell that it's, it's moving backwards in time because it's just doing the same old stuff. And it's not just in quantum mechanics, just in, in, in our everyday world. You know, a, a pendulum uh, that's just swinging and then and you film it and then you run it backwards. You wouldn't be able to tell. So the, the direction to time is something that emerges when you add something extra, like the pendulum swinging in air and friction slows it down. So if you see a pendulum swinging slowly coming to a stop, 
then that gives it a direction. If you filmed that backwards and you saw a pendulum that was standing still and then started swinging again, you think, hang on a minute, what's, what's causing that to happen? Oh, I'm running the film back. So you've, you've got a, an arrow of time there. So it's, where does that arrow come from in the first place is the puzzle. Carlo Rovelli um, talked about this and uh, he made the most startling claim that the, the passage of time was merely the transfer of heat. And I thought it was so beguiling at the time. But as, as I learned from him, in, in similar sort of analogies you've used there, unless something is, um, if something is not moving at all, so if it's minus 270 whatever degrees yes. centigrade, it's not moving at all and there's no heat transfer. But as soon as things start to move, um, you've got a transfer of heat. Um, and he was saying yeah. the same as if you, if you take uh, an object in space, a metal ball, and it doesn't interact with anything and it spins around, if it doesn't interact with anything, you can't tell the difference really whether, you know, if it's going backwards or mm. forwards because mm. there's no heat transfer. But ageing, moving, all these things, that, that is, the passage of time is actually the, the transfer of heat, which is, as, a, as a notion seems ridiculous. Is that something that you're, you're exploring or thinking about? Yeah, um, absolutely. Heat, heat so, part so, of this? So, so heat is absolutely. So this is thermodynamics. And one of the most fundamental ideas in all of physics is called the second law of thermodynamics. It's always fun to think it's the most fundamental. It didn't even make it to the first, the top of the list of thermodynamics laws. <laughs> but nevertheless, that's the way it happened. And the second law of thermodynamics essentially says that heat is transferred from warm objects to cold objects and not the other way around, unless you do something, unless you know, you've know you got a fridge that's run off of you know, electric power. And generally things cool down, things unwind, we get older, things decay. That's the that gives time a direction because you don't see things happening in the opposite direction. You're talking so about in, entropy in a way. This is absolutely, this is entropy. So in thermodynamics, entropy is the increase in disorder. Things that are hot, you put a hot cup of coffee in the freezer, it'll cool down. You don't see, you don't put a cold cup of coffee in the freezer and it heats up. Um, in the quantum world, there's the there's an, uh, sort of a similar analogy to, to heat, which is the leaking of quantum information. So a quantum system that we say is, is, is doing its quantumness, if you put it in the equivalent of a hot cup of coffee in a fridge, you surround this system by an environment, it becomes quantum entangled with its environment and leaks out inf quantum information in a similar way to a hot object leaking out heat. So there's an entropy but a different sort of entropy to do with information down at the quantum scale. So that's what, essentially, that's what this project is about, is trying to get thermodynamics and quantum mechanics merged together into one, 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 one rule, one law. It has always been my um, aim to get through a 15-minute conversation on quantum um, anything without yada yadaing it, and I'm, I'm afraid you failed this by by quantuming a quantum system doing its quantumness. That's the yada yada. You can't do this. In However hard we try, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and so and so the aim is to try and figure out where the direction of time starts to click in from from it not existing at this quantum world to suddenly having atoms that decay, um, life that ages, uh, time and seasons that pass. Yes, and, and it's, a, it's a deeply complicated philosophical issue because there are different types of arrows of time. Um, a quantum system, if left to its own environment and it's, and it's isolated from the rest of the world, will do what it's doing and it's fully time reversible and, 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 and therefore you can't discern a direction to time. As soon as it interacts with its surroundings, what we call an open quantum system, 
then it decoheres. It's like the, it's, it cools down in that sense, and you suddenly have a direction to time. So is it artificial where we put a boundary? What do we say is the quantum system and what is the outside? You know, there are, there are physicists who talk about the whole universe as, as one system, the, the, wave fun- the quantum <laughs> wave function of the universe. And so, so if the whole universe can be described quantum mechanically, where does the direction of time come from? You've, you've got nothing else outside it. You've got no big fridge to put the, the hot universe in to cool it down. So, you know, that, this is why we're talking to the philosophers, but I'm finding it, it's interesting being, being interdisciplinary because I'm a physicist. I talk to the chemists, they have a different language. The mathematicians are too formal. The philosophers are too fluffy. And, you know, and we're, we're all trying to find sort of a common way of, of, of tackling these problems. And it's just fun. Well, well, Jim, you, you need to get them to read your book, I think. Um, well, exactly, exactly. Well, it, it's always fun speaking with you, uh, Professor Jim Arkley, uh, author of The Joy of Science. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.